Good evening. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jen. And we're Unstable Moms. And we have another late night edition of Unstable Moms. Again, kids and all. So I think Jennifer might have a Would You Rather tonight. I do. Which one? So, would you rather have hiccups for the rest of your life or constantly feel like you have to sneeze? Mm. Constantly feel like you have to sneeze. Hiccups yeah. would be physically painful. That's true. Eventually they would because you would get sore. Mm-hmm. I know, but I really hate sneezing. And if I felt like I have to sneeze all the time for the rest of my life, I don't know if I could handle that. I might just go crazy. Well, John had to go to the hospital one time for like a complication from strep throat. And the either the antibiotics or the steroids they gave him made him have uncontrollable hiccups and it lasted for a long time. And then they have to give him, like, this antipsychotic to get to stop. Oh, wow. Aren't there people that are out there that have had hiccups for, like, years? I think so. They probably have great abs. Probably. I think I would have to pick the hiccups only because I really hate sneezing. I would pick the sneezing because I really hate hiccuping. <laughs> and you get used to the feeling after a while. Yeah, that's true. I guess so. But maybe like you get used pains. to the hiccup too Mm-mm. because then writing would suck trying to be quiet would suck <laughs> you would never going, be able to be quiet you'd never be able to go to the movies anymore all right so tonight's episode is gonna be a hard listen for some parts of it i've got some trigger warnings about uh, sexual assault rape and graphic descriptions of the crime scenes and medical reports so just a heads up i'll let you know when those are coming up So, Diane Roberts was born on March 22nd of 1954 to Earl and Mary Roberts in St. Louis, Missouri. She made her way to Texas in the early 70s to study art at Southwest Texas, which is now Texas State. In 1972, she met Jesse Sublett, who was an English major at the same university, in an article that was written by Jesse for Texas Monthly, he described Diane as a tall beauty with long brown hair and said, The first time we met, we both realized there was a spark between us, but neither of us did anything about it. The next time we met, I didn't let her get away from me, and then we were as close as toes in a sock. What? <laughs> Never heard that analogy. I had to read it like three or four times because I was like, isn't it like, Two peas in a pod? Yes. Or like in a for- sock? Forrest Gump was like peas and carrots. Yeah. That would With make him and Jenna. Yeah. Toes in a sock. All right then. So in 1974, Diane and Jesse left college and moved in together. Jesse had plans to become a rock star. In the meantime, because we all know you can become a rock star overnight, he worked as a mail clerk and Diane worked at a credit bureau. They also rented out one of his bedrooms to a friend of Jesse's from high school. And at one point, their roommate had lost a copy of his house key. So he would come and go throughout his window. There was like this loose window pane of glass and he could pull it in and out. So he would reach his hand in there and unlock the window and climb in through the window. Okay, but why wouldn't he just say, hey, dude, I lost my key. Like, can I make another copy? I don't think he was living there very long either. I think it was like a couple of months at most. But, yeah, I don't know why he didn't get a house key, but that's how he got in and out. Interesting. 
So one day the roommate was moving out and he came back to the house while Diane and Jesse were gone. And when they got back, they found the roommate in his room with a friend. And since the front door was locked, they had obviously come in through his usual route. On the morning of August 15th, 1976, Jesse got ready for a gig with his band Jelly Roll. Diane was still asleep when he left. And in the same article from Texas Monthly, he said he had a rehearsal with his band that day at noon. And they would travel to the location for the gig. And they didn't go on till after midnight. So he was going to be away for almost two days. Okay, wait, but so there was a jelly roll before there was a jelly roll? That was his band. I know, but there's currently an artist called Jelly Roll. Well, yeah, this one's from Austin, though, and he was, like, local. Oh, and I don't think he got very popular. It's just interesting to hear that because that's a very unique name, and then there's somebody else out there with a band named Jelly Roll. I don't know who your Jelly Roll is. I bet you do. You probably just don't realize that it's Jelly Roll. Perhaps. So anyway, he was going to be gone for the whole day and into the evening, probably, like, early morning next day. So it, and it's also not like today where they could pop out a cell phone in 1976. Nope. So there was no way to check in or anything like that. So Jesse returned to their South Austin home in their early morning hours of August 16th, where he found Diane nude face down on their bed. When he turned her over, he noticed her face was bloody and there was a pillowcase tied around her neck. Obviously, the police were called. And Jesse was taken into the police station for questioning and to have his fingerprints taken. And Jesse was initially a person of interest. But he wasn't even there. He was with Jelly Roll. But it's always the spouse. I know. That's always the first suspect. They always check in to the spouse first. Jesse also thought that because things were so conservative in the 1970s here in Austin, since we're in the South, he said that he had the long hair and was living a rock star lifestyle and they assumed he was into drugs and things like that. So that their quote unquote lifestyle would have made it to where they put themselves in a situation to have this happen to them. But that was kind of the way he perceived it. And so I'm going to go ahead and give the first trigger warning for a graphic description. So they estimated that her time of death to be about 2.30 in the morning And it was no surprise that Diane's manner of death was ruled a homicide. The medical examiner listed her cause of death to be strangulation. And then the next definition showed that there was forceful pressure placed around her neck. And you could see the fingers and thumb that would be around the middle part of her neck. And they did say that she had a pillowcase around her neck. But I'm wondering if the intruder maybe did that after the fact. Maybe trying to throw the police off. Yeah, or maybe put it over her head and then use the hands to hold it around her neck. No, it was like like the fingerprints, like they were choking her. Oh, like they were actually on her body. Mm -hmm. So maybe after the fact then. So now we're going to meet Lyle Brummett. Lyle was born on December 26, 1956 to Lena and Kenneth Brummett in Kerrville, Texas. He dropped out of high school and began driving trucks for lumber yards in the area. And then Lyle moved to Austin and began pursuing a career as an electrician. And he married his first wife, Lori Jo, on June 25th, 1976. Nice Southern name. It is very Southern. Just like everybody's like Lynn and Marie 
and Lee. Just everybody in my family. Yeah. So in January of 1977, Lori gave birth to their daughter. Some sources say that Lyle knew Diane and they were acquaintances. So the story I read from the Texas Monthly article written by Jesse, her boyfriend, he said that they met him when he was at their home with Jesse's roommate whenever they took that panel off the window and climbed in through the window. So I'm not sure which one is accurate, whether they were acquaintances or they only knew him because of the boyfriend. So after Diane's murder, eyewitnesses told authorities that Lyle was seen at the residence and he was immediately arrested and brought in for questioning. It didn't take long for Lyle to confess to killing Diane. It was literally like the same interrogation. All right, then. Yep. That wasn't hard to find. Yeah, no, he uh, he just gave it all up. It gets He's better. Like, yep, I did it. So in one area, I read that on the night that Diane was murdered, that Lyle was hanging out with friends at Diane's house. And then he left the window screen open with plans to return later. However, in Jesse's recollection, it was a broken window pane that was removed to allow his roommate to come in and out without his house key. And that Lyle came with him one day, so he knew how to gain entry into the home. So remember, Diane was murdered on August 16th of 1976. And he was married just a month and a half before that. And then if their baby was born on January 4th of 77... His wife would have been pregnant before they got married. And I know that because my youngest was due January 22nd. And I found out I was four weeks pregnant in May. So if they were pregnant in June, then the due date would have been February. Yeah. So his pregnant wife was at home and he was out committing these brutal attacks and being just a stand-up citizen. How could you possibly do that whenever you have a pregnant wife at home? I know. I don't understand how you could do that at all, but... Well, I know, <laughs> regardless of a wife, but... A pregnant wife? I mean, he shouldn't be committing murder regardless. Yeah. Man or woman, but I think that that should just... There should be more consideration there. Yeah, and he's only like 18 years old. Oh, so he just threw his life away because he well, openly admitted that he did it as soon as he got questioned. Yeah. So while Bremet was waiting on charges, he then decides that it's time for him to confess to some other crimes. He had a burglary charge from July 1975 where he used the alias Lyle Stone. However, this was not what he wanted to discuss. And I'm positive the police couldn't care less about the burglary charge at that point because he's already being indicted on murder. And he's like, here, I'll confess something to you. Right, that doesn't even matter. (laughs) He decides to let them know that a year prior, he and his friend, Alan Woody, raped and murdered two girls in Kerrville. Wow. Okay, that does matter. He's just laying it all out there on the table. Might as well. He's like, all right, guys, you got me. And while I'm here, let me just tell you how terrible I am. Yes. So, Carol Ann London was born to Bill and Hilda London on September 13th of 1957. She graduated from Tivy High School, where she was a member of the choir and the Future Homemakers Club. After she graduated, she worked at Doyle Kindergarten as a student aide. And her most recent BFF was uh, the next one neighbor, Elizabeth Pearson. Beth is what her friends and family called her was born on October 29th of 1959 to Raymond and Patsy Valance. 
And did you notice the differences in their last name? Yeah. What's going on there? Elizabeth Pearson and her parents' last name was Valance. Beth was a newlywed. And so if you do the math between 59 and 75, Beth was only 15 years old. Well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. 15 and a newlywed. Can you imagine? No, I could never imagine being that young and dealing with newlywed life. I couldn't even drive a car. Exactly. You can't even, you can't even really get a job. I mean, like there's some places that'll hire at 15, but for the most part, it's 16. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no way. So she married her husband, Jimmy, on August 29th of 75. So on September 17th of 1975, Beth and Carol were in Jimmy's car with Carol driving because she was 18. And they went to the local grocery store to do some shopping. The girls returned home and then they dropped off their groceries, I guess. And then it said they went back out. The local sheriff stated in an interview that they ran away from time to time, but they seemed like nice girls. They just like to get out and have fun. I don't think that it's running away. I mean, could be. I guess it depends on how long they stay gone. Mm-hmm. But she's a married woman. She can do what she wants. But they had only been married three weeks. Well, I was just saying, like, because the sheriff was the one that was saying that she's like a runaway. But was she out with her husband? So Beth's family was heading home from a family trip to Ingram, Texas. When they saw Beth's car speeding past the opposite direction, going towards, like, downtown. The girls never returned home that night, and the car was later located and abandoned at the Kerrville County Courthouse. That is a mouthful. Kerrville County Courthouse. It's a lot of C's. Well, Kerrville starts with a K. That's right, but it sounds like a C. I forgot. I, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking of Conroe. Mm. Yeah. The girls were later reported missing, and Jimmy, best husband of three weeks, offered a $100 reward, which is worth about $567 today. But they're kids. That's like so nothing. But they're kids. Well, yeah. And they have nothing because you can't even work because mm-hmm. you're 15. Mm-hmm. But her husband was 18, so. Well, and he had to obviously hold some kind of job down if they were living as a married couple somewhere. But I think in the 70s, it was still very traditional where, like, the women stayed home. That's true. So So even if she was of age to work, then it probably wouldn't matter because she would just stay home. Yeah. So uh, in his confession, Brummett stated that he and his friend, Alan Woody, saw the girl's car broken down on the side of the road and they offered them a ride. The girls accepted the ride, and from there they raped and murdered the girls and buried them at Joe Salvaggio Ranch. All of this occurred while he was out on bond for two other rapes. Wow, this was a really stand-up guy. The first one on November 16th of 1975. The second one happened on September 2nd of 75. And then he raped and murdered these two for 17th of 1975. Wow, so he's just, like, going on a spree. Yeah, they're all really close together. Yeah, they are. And then after his confession, Brummett offered to lead deputies to locate the remains of Beth and Carol. So on February 3rd, 1977, Brummett, dressed in street clothes instead of his lovely prison couture gown, (laughs) uh, they searched through the night with the Kerrville Sheriff's Office. 
And then at 8.24 the following morning, the skeletal remains of the girls were located. They were sent back to the Austin Police Department for identification. The owner of the ranch stated that no one had been in that particular area of the ranch for over two years, which is why the remains were never discovered sooner. Well, and they probably wouldn't have discovered them anyway, because why would they just be digging? If it was fresh, though, and they were out there and they would see, like, oh, the like dirt the was disturbed. Mount. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, yeah. Or they might see that somebody had been there. True. So... Once back at the APD headquarters, Brummett was waiting to get back to the jail, and he asked if he could use the restroom. So he casually walked out of APD headquarters and into downtown Austin because no one decided to watch him. Oh, so we're just like letting people go, basically. We're going to let him dress in civilian clothes. And then we're not going to watch him when he tries to go to the bathroom. Why would why would they not have, like, a very close eye on this guy who has just not only committed murder recently, but admitted to committing several other offenses in his lifetime. But we're just going to go ahead and let him go to the bathroom and then watch him walk out the door. Right. Make it make sense. So a bolo was put out immediately, and a bolo is a be on the lookout, and the police posted up at his family members' houses, just in case he showed up there. So while he was having a night out on the town, Brummett went to a party, and he drank beer, and then he passed out. We just had a good old time. And then later on in the party, a couple of people noticed him, and they promptly threw him out. Well, why didn't they call the cops? So uh, they never called the police. But the next day, the police did receive a phone call, but it was from Brummett. He was using a payphone outside of a convenience store, and he asked them to come and pick him up. So he's like, (laughs) why did he leave? He's like, cool, 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 cool. Uh, That was fun. Thanks for the (laughs) night out. I'm good. Can you just come get me? Can I have a ride? like his last two raw. (laughs) he's like i just needed one more night who calls the cops on themselves he's right he's tired he needs his bed at 18 i guess he wasn't 18 anymore but still pretty young Uh, yeah so he was picked up and promptly put back in jail as he should be so he decides to forego a trial and pleads guilty to all three counts of capital murder and during some of the interviews, when he was asked about the murders, he would say, quote, it just happens every so often. I can't control it. I don't know what is what. Sometimes my mind makes me do things, so I don't know what I'm doing till it's too late. Any other time, I can just be normal as hell. So it sounds like he had some mental health issues that were very much unaddressed, but it makes sense because it was the 70s and that wasn't really a big thing. Right. Mental health wasn't a thing then. But also, it has to be mental health issues because murder doesn't just happen. I don't, I don't go around murdering people. Like it just, it doesn't just happen. Yeah, somewhere in there, I feel like maybe their brains are just wired a little bit different. Well, yeah, it almost sounds like he's a little bit schizophrenic. If he, he was saying that he's fine for the most part, and then like something just like it's almost like something's telling him like you need to do this. Yeah, either way, it's not a good situation. Like, 
I almost feel like you can't say I have mental health issues. Like, let me be crazy. No, no. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's an excuse to go and murder just because you have mental health issues, but the way that he was explaining it, it just sounds like something was definitely going on that he needed help for and he didn't get help for. And then it escalated into him doing these terrible things. Which he should be punished for because you have to take accountability for the actions that you do, even if it's because your brain is wired differently. So in a lot of newspaper articles, he made several statements about wanting to go to the chair, which of course is the electric chair. And he didn't want to just sit in prison and deal with all the appeals. When they asked about his wife, he said that they both decided that it didn't make sense for them to stay married if he got sentenced to life in prison. And he said he met the baby and it was very cute. It was like when the baby was like a month old, but he didn't feel much else for her. Wow. So he clearly had some kind of disconnect. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How can Um, you have a child and just be like, oh, it's cute. mm -hmm. That's it. It's a a cute baby. (laughs) It's yours. Mm -hmm. Look at you. But then um, they eventually divorced in September of 1980. And while in prison, and I'll give another trigger warning, this is going to be about rape. So while he was in prison, three other inmates bound and gagged a 17-year-old male inmate and forced him to perform anal and oral sex on all three of them. He was also indicted on that, and they added the charge of aggravated sexual battery to uh, the laundry list of charges he was collecting like he wasn't already spending life in prison anyway i mean he still needs to be like held accountable for what he's doing but you know that he had to like three counts of murder he was in jail forever prison very true so after all of his big talk about wanting the death penalty which again back in the day was the electric chair And he decides, you know what, maybe I don't want to do that. After all, that does not sound like a good time. (laughs) He's like, how about I just testify against my boy, Alan, and then we can take capital murder off the table. So they accepted his plea deal. And just based on Bromit's testimony, primarily, Alan Woody was convicted of the murder of Beth Pearson. And the murder charge for Beth for Bromit was dropped. On April 21st, Brummett pled guilty to the murders of Carol Ann, and on April 27th, he pleaded guilty to the first-degree murder of Diane Roberts. And then he pled guilty to both counts and then testified against Allen just to avoid the death penalty. So were one of them convicted on one of the girls and the other one was convicted on the other girl? Yeah. So originally Lyle was going to take all three charges and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I can't do that. Have this guy go down for that one and then I'll help you have him go down for that one. And then you don't kill me. (laughs) And then I'll just tell you, yes, I did these other two and we should all be good. That's quite a deal. Either way, he's going to like rot in jail or prison. Probably. So Bromit's current place of residence is the Ramsey unit in Rocheron, Texas. His TDJC inmate number is 00267843, just in case you want to send him (laughs) a letter. Let him know what a fine piece of work he is. Man, I might write him a letter. Uh, (laughs) He's applied for parole. 
Well, I mean, he might need a new wife. I'm good. I'm good. He did get married once while he was in prison. Oh, who does that? I don't understand people that get married, especially if it's like a lifer. Like, he's going to be in prison for life. I could understand maybe if he was going to get out yeah. in a few years. But this guy is going to die there, and you're going to get married to him? Like, you have, you're not going to get, like, any benefit from that. No. It's not like you're going to inherit all his money that he made while he was in prison. Or security right. or anything. I don't know. I mean, I guess they do get, like, paid for some of the jobs they do in there, like, 15 cents an hour or something. I know. It's a little yeah. ridiculous. But he has applied for parole now many times and has been denied every single time. So for someone who wanted the electric chair to being someone who's like applying for parole. Now he's got, he wants to get out and have that good um, time again. Yeah, he needs a spear <laughs> and to pass out. Yep. So the last time he was up for parole was in August of 2020. And the reason for his denial was the nature of his offense. And it said the record indicates the instant offense has elements of brutality, violence, assaultive behavior, or conscious selection of victims' vulnerability, indicating a conscious disregard for the life, safety, or property of others, such that the offender poses a continuing threat to public safety. Even this long, though? Um, and Well, that one was in 2020. No, but I mean, like, he could... Maybe he's still having trouble. He committed these offenses in the 70s, right? And then even in 2020, they're still like, yeah, you did really bad. Which he did. He did terrible things. Yeah. But they're still like, no, you can't even have parole because what you did back in the 70s was so terrible that you can't get out. But I wonder if he has other issues or other violent acts while he's been in prison long term. And so they're like, well, your original offense was so bad and you're still a piece of shit. So. Right. That could be it. Yeah. You can't follow rules in prison. So we're not going to let you out. Right. He's probably Um, in prison. You're right. Maybe. So he is currently up for parole again in August and his parole status says it's listed as in review and they said that they start reviewing them like six months before their parole date. So if you'd like to send a letter to uh, the parole board to support the victim's families, you would send a letter to TDCJ Parole Division Attention Correspondence at P.O. Box 13401, Capital Station, Austin, 78711. And then just make sure to include the offender's name and TDCJ number. And you can send them a letter and say he should be in there forever. He really should. And that is the story of Diane Roberts, Elizabeth Pearson, and Carol London. They live very short lives. Mm -hmm. They deserve so much better. And he deserves to be in there for life. Honestly, he deserves the death penalty, but he got lucky and made a deal. Well, I don't want to say I hope you enjoy it because I, I don't know who would enjoy this stuff. Absolutely not. Um, I hope you learned something new about Austin in the 1970s because I did. Well, thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.